Scripture reading today is um, from Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 11. It's uh, found on page 1162 in your pew Bible, or you can pull out your own Bible or own electronic device, iPad, Droid, iPhone, Kindle, it's all I know. Probably half of those you couldn't pull up a Bible on, but I thought I would get high tech today using my Father's Day gift. So, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated and find your way to Philippians chapter 2. Again, we're looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning, which continues the section that we began a couple of weeks ago, 127 through 24. We got a little bit out of order due to a storm and a power outage a few weeks back uh, that caused us to cancel the service, but we are now back on track. And uh, you can find this passage again on page 1162 if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you. It's not uncommon to speak of celebrities as having a God complex. So people who have worked hard very often and have become famous and then let that fame and sense of significance and importance go to their head. Uh, you look at some of the speaking fees that notable Americans will demand. Uh, if you're a former president, you can pull in anywhere from $50,000 to $350,000 just for a single speech. Uh, and some celebrities don't even have to say anything to get paid. You know, they have these things called appearance fees. So you can get anywhere from a couple thousand even up to, to $50,000 just for showing up and being seen at a party or an event. Uh, but perhaps few modern cultural artifacts capture this mindset better than the concert writer. These are the backstage requests that famous performing artists will attach to their contracts. Things like a, a bowl full of M&Ms with all the brown ones picked out, or a new toilet seat installed at each performing venue, or, quote, an organic cheese tray featuring caved-aged Gruyere, Swiss and sharp cheddar, along with organic berries, fresh, not canned olives, and Ferrero Rocher chocolates. So one commenter explains that these celebrities have reached a certain point in their careers where they expect respect, and they want a physical manifestation of it. In other words, they want you to treat them in accordance with their status as famous people. They have this status. 
People recognize it, so they want to gain from it by making others serve them. And if you don't do a good enough job, then you will face their unholy wrath. It's no surprise that we've come to refer to these kinds of celebrities as deities. We call them rock gods and goddesses or divas or American idols. But what about someone who really is equal with God? Someone like Jesus. What mindset does he have? How does he use the status that rightfully belongs to him? And how does that shape the way we should think about things like status and rights and privileges and, and uh, desires and reputation and goals when it comes to living as a community shaped by the gospel and on mission for the gospel? That's where Paul is taking us in this passage this morning, which is at the same time both theologically rich and intensely practical. The Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and the surprising pattern of the cross. So let's pray together as we look into this passage. Lord, we are so grateful that you have made yourself known to us in Jesus and that you've given us your word in Scripture to point us to the cross. Lord, there are deep, rich mysteries that we are about to behold. And yet, there's also a calling that we are called to obey. So as we look into your word, give us ears to hear your voice, give us eyes to see you more clearly, and give us hearts that are eager to be changed by your spirit that we might obey and make much of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is again part of a larger section in the book of Philippians, which we've been going through for, uh, I guess, a month and a half now, maybe. And uh, this is the part of, part of the section where Paul's laying out more direct exhortations about how the church should live. They are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus in 127, to be a gospel-centered church, which we saw a couple of weeks ago means living as a community on mission for Christ with unity, humility, and love, and being so satisfied in Jesus that we're actually free to serve Jesus. Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the call, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But the question is, what does that kind of unity, humility, and love that Paul calls us to here, what does that actually look like in the life of the church as we interact with one another, as we sin against one another, 
or, or our sin against ourselves. What does it look like to live this out as a gospel-shaped community, as a community that finds its identity in Jesus and being rescued from our sin, as a community that's fueled by the grace of Jesus and the power of his spirit, and as a community that's on mission for Jesus to make much of him in this world. Well, Paul points to the ultimate pattern in our passage to show us what that looks like. He points to Jesus himself. And this poem has two parts. Uh, Verses 6 through 8 show us the self-giving humiliation of Christ. And then verses 9 through 11 show us the super exaltation of Christ. And we're going to look first at his self-giving humiliation in verse 6. Paul begins by highlighting Jesus' status as being equal with God. We cannot miss that. He says, who being in very nature God or in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at. So Jesus is equal with God. That's Paul's starting premise. Because he is, in essence, God. The God of the Bible is a triune God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom are fully God from all eternity. So Jesus has always been fully God. He is the eternal Son, as John 1 says, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the word, Jesus, in that passage, was with God in the beginning. And Jesus always remains fully God. So he was God from all eternity. He remains fully God even when he takes on flesh and becomes fully human at the same time. Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. So, so in other words, Jesus was not a human who lived such a good life that he eventually worked his way into becoming a god. Neither does he become less than God when he takes on flesh and walks on the earth as a full, true human. As some people mis- misread our passage this morning to say, Jesus is equal with God, always. He has that status of equality. The question is, What does he do with his equality with God? It's not about whether he retains it. It's about what he does with his equality. And to explain this, Paul draws a contrast between Jesus being in the form of God and taking on the form of a servant. Again in verse 6. And now, we need to clarify, when Paul talks about Jesus being in very nature God or in the form of God... He's not talking about Jesus' essence or substance, which is what we often think of with the word nature. What is Jesus? No, Jesus is God. Paul's interested in what does he look like. That's the question. That's the contrast he's making. The word form here, the word translated form or nature, refers to his outward appearance and shape. That's what that word means. So what he looks like, not what he is. He is God. What does he look like? And if you were to have looked at Jesus in heaven before he took on flesh, before the incarnation, you would have seen him appearing in the full radiance of the glory of God. That was the form of God he took. 
Jesus' equality with God was displayed outwardly in glory. But listen again to the middle of verse 6. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, or more explicitly, something to be exploited for selfish gain. So he has this thing, and he's going to use it in order to gain personally from it. Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited for selfish gain, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, his glorious status, taking the form of a servant, a slave, being made in human likeness. Now that picture is powerful. Jesus, being equal with God, exchanged his outward glory and status as God for the outward shame and lack of status that comes with being a slave. That's the picture. All the rights, privileges, and glory of God in heaven to no rights, no privileges, no glory, only shame on earth. In other words, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he didn't come with a concert writer saying, if someone as important with me has to spend time with someone as unimportant as you, then these are my demands. And don't forget the cave age Gruyere. Jesus didn't come with that attitude. No, he took off his outer robes, and like a slave, he washed the feet of his own followers. In John 13. Isaiah 53 describes him looking into the future. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. But this shame and this humiliation had a purpose. Isaiah continues, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, this man of no reputation, the iniquity of us all. There was a purpose in Jesus becoming human. And that purpose was to rescue sinful humans like you and like me. The problem with humanity is that we all have a celebrity complex. We all have a God complex. Can't just blame the famous people. In, in reality, we all want to be treated like God. Because we think we do a better job of running the world. We think our rules make better sense than his. And we would rather be sitting on his throne than him. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called sin. Rebellion. And the punishment for sin against God's eternal throne is eternal death. But before eternity, 
God decreed that his son would go. He would send his son to rescue us from that rebellion, something that only God could do. Yet for, to do it, God the Son had to become fully human. See, if Jesus isn't fully human, he can't stand in the place of other humans to represent us before God with the life that he lived, which we failed to live, or to represent and take the punishment for our sin on himself for the death that we deserve. If he's not God, he can't accomplish the salvation. If he's not human, it doesn't count. Jesus is fully God, fully human, to rescue us from our sins. So in perfect obedience to his Father, Jesus chose not to exploit his equality with God for selfish gain, but he became nothing. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself from the glory of heaven to the most humiliating point of human existence, crucifixion. The cross, you know, we wear it like jewelry today, and it's something pretty to look at, something that represents this whole religion and faith called Christianity. The cross in the Roman world, was the epitome of shame. It was not glorious. It was reserved for slaves, rebels, and anarchists. The Roman philosopher Cicero said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. That's what it meant to be crucified. That was the lowest of lows in human existence. That's how far Jesus was willing to go to obey his Father and to love us. That's what Jesus did with his status. One commentator puts it. He did not understand his equality with God as a matter of being served by others, but as something he could express in service. Obedience, self-renunciation, self-humiliation. Another author says, his progression through incarnation to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. In other words, Jesus' decision to take on the form of a servant, servant, to become human and to die, was not a contradiction to his deity, to his godness. Rather, it was an expression of it. He showed us, in his incarnation and his death, what the self giving love of God looks like. And look at what God does then for Jesus in response. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God takes Jesus from the lowest of earthly lows, death on a cross, and he exalts him to the highest of heavenly heights. Listen to the language of elevation in verse 9. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. You can't get any higher than that. It's what one preacher calls the super exaltation of Christ. And what name does he give him? He gives him this name that's above every name. What name is that? The only name that demands the allegiance of every creature. Verse 10 describes every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. It's another way of saying every knee that ever existed deserves to bow before this name. God gives Jesus the only name that will be on every tongue that ever existed when we stand before God in the end, confessing that he alone is God, whether as a shout of joy or a cry of anguish, having rejected him in this life. God gives him the same name that Isaiah 45 speaks of, which Paul echoes here, where God says, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Catch that there. To, this is God speaking. To me... Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord shall it be said of me, our righteousness and strength. God gives Jesus his very own proper name, Yahweh. Translated in the Old Testament as Lord with all capital letters. If you ever wonder why Lord sometimes spelled with all caps, sometimes with lower, when it's all caps, that's God's proper name, the name he revealed to Moses in a special way at the burning bush and at Sinai, his proper covenant name. Jesus gives, God gives this name to Jesus, just as Philippians 2.11 tells us, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father there's any question as to Jesus's equality with God, verse 11 casts out all doubt. Jesus receives the glory due his name. The glory that he rightfully deserves being equal with God. The glory that redounds to his own father's glory. That's where the passage ends. But here's the point. It was only through his humiliation, that he was exalted. It was only through his death that he brought life. Only through his shame that he receives glory. This is the surprising pattern of the cross. Christ's exaltation in verses 9 through 11 was not despite his humiliation. It was because of it. 
Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore. Because this is Jesus, this is what he did with his status of being equal with me, therefore. Humiliation wasn't the problem, it was the pattern. Jesus acted in accordance with his father's plan and in accordance with his equality with God. So this is the pattern. And it's the necessary pattern for rescuing sinners like me and you. Because when Jesus humbled himself to the lowest of lows, the shame of the cross, he went where we deserved to go. He stood in our place. He became human in order to take our humiliation, our shame, and the penalty of our sin, death, on himself to rescue us as only God can do. And I just want to say that if this idea is new to you, if you're just trying to make sense of this thing called Christianity or what it means to be a Christian and to know God in a personal way, I want you to know that the work is already done. God is not waiting for you to get your act together, to clean up your life and start, you know, so that you can perform for him and maybe make it up to him. He's done the work. He's done it. It's accomplished. What God is asking you to do is to believe, to put the full weight of your hope and your trust in Christ and what he's done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. There are a few passages in the New Testament that are as comprehensive in theology and as beautiful in poetry as this one. But the marvel of this passage is not merely in the picture that it paints of Jesus, but in the fact that this picture supplies the pattern for the life God calls us to live as well. And in our relationships, in our personal lives, in our partnership, in the advance of the gospel. Look again at verse 5. This verse sets up the whole poem. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who did these things? So the whole point is that the mindset that Christ had ought to be reflected in our mindset, our attitude, as we interact with one another, as we serve together on mission for Jesus. Think the same way that Jesus thinks. In fact, there are several verbal connections between Paul's instructions in verses 1 through 4 and the pattern of Jesus in 5 through 11. Uh, For instance, just as Paul tells us, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. So Jesus did not consider, that's the same word, his equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, same word again, uh, to serve others. Jesus is the pattern for what Paul calls us to in verses 1 through 4. So we cannot walk away from this passage simply knowing more about Jesus and having our doctrine kind of cleared up better. Now, we must walk away knowing more about Jesus and having our doctrine clear of who he is and what he's done. But we can't stop there. Paul's going farther. Paul is calling us to have the same attitude, the same 
mindset toward life, toward our status, toward our rights and our privileges that Jesus had. We have to ask ourselves, what does this look like? What does it look like to adopt the mind of Christ? And what's at stake if we don't? What happens if we take on the world's way of thinking? If we, you know, g- give way to the celebrity complex and, and uh, you know, even bring that with us into the church and how it works and relates? What happens if we give way to the world's pattern? Well, it looks like selfish ambition and vain conceit. The very things... Paul warns us against in verse 3. It fuels a culture of self-centeredness, this pattern of of the world, where what I want, what I deserve comes first. See, I have these gifts and these abilities, and I deserve to be able to use them, regardless of what you think. I have these desires and preferences, and I have a right to enjoy them. I've worked hard. I deserve to hold this position, this office, and I'm certainly too valuable for that one. And all of a sudden, our our self-centeredness betrays a a self-righteousness where, you know, I think I'm better than others. I have to kind of sheepishly remind them that I'm kind of a big deal. My ideas are better. My tastes are better. And in order to protect my interests, I must always be on guard against the interests of others because they're a threat. And so our self-righteousness breeds a culture of suspicion in our relationships. We're always worried that somebody is going to try and deprive me of my rights and take advantage of me. And so we, we put up the guard And if we sense a threat, we either prepare our retaliation, or even better, we preemptively strike. And so what are we left with in the church? But broken relationships, wounded lives, vessels that are not useful for God and his purposes. Because we're too consumed with self to even see Jesus. But the pattern of the cross is so different. One author writes, The incarnation of Christ Jesus represents the antithesis of this human drive to dominate. Although he had access to all the privileges and power to which his identity with God entitled him, and although he could have exploited that privilege and power to dominate his creatures... Jesus considered his deity an opportunity for service and obedience. And not only did he do it himself, he told us to do likewise. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 10, 42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, your slave. 
and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, with his concert writer, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the pattern of the cross. Life through death. Exaltation through humiliation. Glory through shame. Picture of downward mobility. So what does it look like to have this same mindset among ourselves? What if following the pattern of Jesus meant laying aside my rights and my desires and instead championing yours? What if it meant that I was more interested, for example, in, in making sure that we sing the songs you like and that we fund the ministries that you are really excited about? What if that was more my concern than the other? What if it means not assuming that I'm always right? but being eager to listen and to learn from others? What if it means being okay if I'm never recognized for anything that I do this side of heaven and that all I have is the glorious reward waiting in the end? What if it means that I'm so satisfied in Christ that I'm free to respond to the needs or the troubles of others with compassion and self-giving love rather than with the fear of being inconvenienced or taken advantage of? What if following Jesus' pattern means that I'm free to be deprived of every right, that I don't have to defend my rights? Because just as God was faithful to vindicate Jesus, so he will be faithful to vindicate us. He promises that we too, in Christ, will share in Christ's glory, not stealing it, but reflecting it in the resurrection to come. Paul says in chapter 321, when Christ returns, we will go through that same process of humiliation to glory. Our, he will transform our humble bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Christ is our vindication. What if I find that in giving up everything for Jesus and for the love of his people and the sake of his mission, that I've actually gained everything worth having? More of Jesus, the joy of his presence, the incomparable riches of the inheritance waiting in heaven with all the saints. That's the surprising pattern of the cross. Life through death. Glory through shame. Exaltation through humiliation. Becoming a servant to all. May God strengthen us personally and as a church to follow that pattern. To delight in Jesus and be useful to him and his purposes. Let's pray together.
Lord, as we look at the pattern Jesus gave us, we are immediately faced with the reality that we cannot do that. We do not have strength or the resolve. We don't have the humility. We don't love you enough to follow that pattern. We are in such desperate need of your grace and your mercy and your spirit. And so, God, I pray that you would pour that out on us, that we might reflect you. Help us to let go of the things in this world that we cling to so that we're able to take hold of Jesus, so that we're able to lay our lives down to risk even being taken advantage of because that's exactly what happened to you. Lord, give us the strength. Give us the grace. Give us the joy of following your pattern. And may that pattern, as it takes root in our hearts and in the way that we relate and interact as a congregation, may that pattern be a light to the community around us that others would see, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. Look at the way they've laid down their lives. Look at how they've loved one another at great personal cost. God, do that among us. We ask it in Jesus' name.